We read from Holy Scripture this evening with a view to preparatory sermon from Joel chapter 2. Joel, the prophecy of Joel, chapter 2. And we're going to read the first 27 verses. I noticed I put in the bulletin only 20, but we'll do the first 27. Blow ye the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord cometh. For it is nigh at hand, a day of darkness and of gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness, as the morning spread upon the mountains, a great people and a strong There hath not been ever the like, neither shall be any more after it, even to the years of many generations. A fire devoureth before them, and behind them a flame burneth. The land is as the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. Yea, and nothing shall escape them. The appearance of them is as the appearance of horses, and as horsemen so shall they run, like the noise of chariots. On the tops of mountains shall they leap, like the noise of a flame of fire that devoureth the stubble, as a strong people set in battle array. Before their face the people shall be much pained, All faces shall gather blackness. They shall run like mighty men. They shall climb the wall like men of war. And they shall march every one on his ways. And they shall not break their ranks. Neither shall one thrust another. They shall walk every one in his path. And when they fall upon the sword, they shall not be wounded. They shall run to and fro in the city. They shall run upon the wall. They shall climb up upon the houses. They shall enter in at the windows like a thief. The earth shall quake before them. The heaven shall tremble. The sun and the moon shall be dark. And the stars shall withdraw their shining. And the Lord shall utter His voice before His army, for His camp is very great, for He is strong that executeth His word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible, and who can abide it? Therefore also now saith the Lord, turn ye even to Me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your heart, and not your garments. And turn unto the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repenteth Him of the evil, who knoweth if He will return and repent, and leave a blessing behind Him, even a meat offering and a drink offering unto the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sanctify a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children and those that suck the breasts. Let the bridegroom go forth of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. 
Let the priests and the ministers of the Lord weep before the porch and the altar, and let them say, Spare thy people, O Lord, and give not thine heritage to reproach, that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, Where is their God? Then will the Lord be jealous for his land and pity his people. Yea, the Lord will answer and say unto his people, Behold, I will send you corn and wine and oil, and ye shall be satisfied therewith, and I will no more make you a reproach among the heathen. But I will remove far off from you the northern army, and will drive him into a land barren and desolate, with his face toward the east sea, and his hinder part toward the utmost sea, and his stink shall come up and his ill savor shall come up, because he hath done great things. Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord will do great things. Be not afraid, ye beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness do spring, for the tree beareth her fruit, the fig tree and the vine do yield their strength. Be glad then, ye children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he hath given you the former rain moderately, and he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain and the latter rain in the first month. And the floors shall be full of wheat, and the vats shall overflow with wine and oil. And I will restore to you the years that the locust hath eaten, the canker worm and the caterpillar and the palmer worm, my great army which I send among you. And ye shall eat in plenty, and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God that hath dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never be ashamed. And ye shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and none else. And my people shall never be ashamed. The word of God that we consider tonight is verses 13 and 14, and rend your heart and not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repenteth Him of the evil who knoweth, if He will return and repent and leave a blessing behind Him, even a meat offering and a drink offering unto the Lord your God. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, the word of the prophet here is, as the first verse makes clear, an alarming blowing of the trumpet, calling the people of Israel together and calling them to repentance. This is then a blowing of the trumpet to the church of our Lord Jesus Christ, even of Zion and God's people. It is a warning, a call to repentance in the midst of a fearful prophecy of a gloomy day, days of darkness, verse 2, a day in which is coming a horde of great and mighty people, even an invincible army. That's what's being described here, a people coming unlike any other people. They will destroy the land, burning it with fire, turning it from an Eden to a desert. 
It will come with horses and with chariots, with swords and with spears, and leave the land desolate. This is not, however, an army of men and of physical horses and chariots and swords and spears, but as we read later in verse 25, it's an army of insects and an army of worms that kill not by sword, but by eating the crops. We read, therefore, in verse 6, that this people that's coming, this army of locusts and palmer worms, will cause the people great pain and black skin. What's being described there is death by starvation. They will eat everything so that we read in verse 4, in 6 through 7 of the even the first chapter of the book, there will be no crops, no fruits, no grasses, nothing to eat for the people. However, that's not the end of the matter. In the midst of this call to repentance is implied also that if Israel does not repent, if Israel does not turn from her sins, if she does not heed the word of the Lord to rend their hearts and not their garments, this great horde that will come and climb over the walls and run through the streets, killing the people and turning everything to a desolate waste, burning everything to the ground, will indeed be an invincible people with actual chariots and horsemen. And the sad thing is that that's exactly what happened. Israel did not heed this word of the prophet, but scorned the prophet. And God indeed sent a great army and even destroyed His own people. Which shows you that behind all this, this is a passage that speaks of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The coming judgment of God upon His own Son. And then God's blessing upon His people because of that turning away of His wrath in our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's evident when in the verse that we did not read, verse 28, that verse is quoted by the Apostle Peter with the great outpouring of the Spirit on Pentecost. It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out My Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And so you see, this call to Israel is issued even with a view to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Certainly, His coming at the end of time, at the end of the world. But now even His coming in judgment upon the world in which we live and upon the church that is upon the world of today for her sins. It's a call to repent, a call to conversion in the church. And even as we are interested in this evening, a call to repentance with a view to the Lord's Supper. Repent lest we starve. And in the way of repentance we find a great great feast 
and the promises of the Lord fulfilled through our Lord Jesus Christ. Consider with me this evening the rending of our hearts and not our garments. Consider all, first of all, the necessity of that and by way of introduction to set forth that there's more here in this passage than meets the eye and not very apparent in the English translation, but in the original Hebrew more evident in the graphic language of the Hebrews, there is more going on in the passage, and the Lord is connecting dots that I hope to make clear to you in the sermon. We might, when we look at this, understand the distinction between rending your heart and rending your garments. And we might readily bring to mind the rending of garments that often happened with regard to repentance that was a part of rending one's garments out of sorrow for sin so that one could then be clothed with sackcloth and ashes. And it was a sign before the Lord of repentance and sorrow of heart. And that that is really what's being set forth here. Instead of doing that, instead of engaging in this ritual and this tradition, the Lord wants you to rend your hearts. That's His interest. What's inside the garment, not the garment itself. And you would be partially correct, but in light of the figure, in light of the blowing of the trumpet, in light of the judgments, you have to see there's much more going on here. Rending the garments was a sign of grief in general. And typically in Scripture, when you read of rent garments, it frequently is not with regard to sin, or sorrow over sin, although we should see that that is the kind of grief that should be associated with repentance and grief over sin, but most frequently is grief due to God's judgments or grief due to God's heavy hand upon someone, even in His providence. And part of the point of the Lord is here, don't rend your garments because that doesn't mean a whole lot. You will find in the Holy Scriptures that Ahab rent his clothes when he heard about God's judgment pronounced on him through the prophet Elijah. Athaliah rent her clothes when she saw Joash, anointed king, both very wicked people. God's people have also done this. You may recall the story of Reuben. How Reuben had planned to go back and rescue Joseph from the pit. And when he returned, he found out his brothers had sold him in slavery instead. And his reaction was in his grief to rent his clothes. 
We read of Jacob rending his clothes in the grief over the loss of his son. We read about the brothers of Joseph rending their garments when they discovered Joseph's cup among their stuff and knew that their life was in peril. Joshua, along with many in Israel, rent their garments when they lost the battle that they should have won at Ai. And this, of course, is the reaction of Job when he received the very sorrowful news that all of his children had been killed and he had lost all of his property in one day. His response was to rend his garments in great grief and sorrow, not necessarily over sin, but God's heavy hand. And that's the idea here. The idea here is that one would expect the whole land, if God's judgments are carried out, to rend their garments. Such will be the destruction. Such will be the pain. Such will be the trouble. Such will be the grief. But that's the only appropriate response. Rend your garments. And then understand really why that's done. Why would, in response to grief, whether it be of the wicked or whether it be of the righteous, one would rend his garments? And the answer is because it's a sign that my life is not worth living. My life is over for all practical intents and purposes such that there's no value or worth in my clothes. No use even wearing garments anymore. Such is my shame and lowliness that nothing more could be done to me than to be stripped naked. And that's what I shall do. And of course, for a godly person, a godly person especially who understands the relationship between his sin and God's judgments, or even who would be sorrowful for sin, there would be a rending of the garments in recognition of the great grief, the great grief that one has over his sin. So, indeed, it is related to repentance. But understand that it has to do with grief, sorrow, offense. And that's how you would expect the people to react here. That's how you would expect the people to react in response to what the God even has prophesied. That God has said these things and that in response there would be a great rending of garments in Jerusalem. But God says, do not do that. Now there's something else behind the symbolism of the rending of garments that Israel would have recognized and known. And one reason why in particular there is recorded in the Scriptures so much of the rending of garments, not only with the covenant people, but in relationship to their sin. And it has to do with that word rend. 
it's not the same as the idea of splitting or dividing or hewing or cutting, but it's the idea of ripping apart that which was deliberately knit together. It's the rending of a garment whereby someone took individual threads Someone took individual yarn and wool or some sort of fabric and stitches it and weaves it all together so that there's one garment, one piece, one unity. And a person doesn't simply take a scissors and cut it up, but they tear it to shreds, to pieces. And that's what that word conveys. It's the tearing apart of something that belongs as one, is meant to be one. In fact, it's the very same word that's used for the breaking of God's covenant. That when Israel would sin, that when Israel would depart from God, when Israel would live in wickedness and not in fellowship with God, that God would call that a rending. I know the word often we see as break, but it's a rending of God's covenant. And that's what sin is. That's what sin does. Sin rends the covenant fellowship, the unity and the union that ought to be there. Number one, between the people and God Himself, that in the covenant, God knits this wonderful, beautiful fabric, this union And now it's torn by sin, but also among the covenant people themselves. That when they would sin against one another and against their neighbor, they would rend the covenant fabric in their union with God. And that's what's being brought to mind here. God is reminding the people to whom He speaks. This trumpet is blowing in Zion. It is God's prophet. It is God speaking. And God is speaking to them as His people in His covenant. And He's teaching them what their sin has done. First of all, this is what you are. You are one people knit together in the bonds of love and fellowship. Knit together with Me. We are one people. My name is upon you. My prophets are in your land. My house is in your city. My words are in your heart. My law is in its place. My love and grace reigns here. You are my people and I am your God. One fabric, one garment, one covenant. And you have torn it. God is reminding them that this is what the original sin was. This is what Adam and Eve had done. They were the friends of God. His servants. Living in Eden. There's a reason why that word Eden is even referenced in the passage. That this horde that comes in. This horde even of sin and iniquity invades Eden. And turns Eden into a wasteland in the desert. And that's what would be signified by the rending of garments. A sign of sin and what it does. It's a sign of God's judgment. And here, it's worth reminding ourselves 
that one of the primary ways God judges sin is He gives people over to sin. Sin upon sin. A horde, an unstoppable horde. So a rather apt word for the people of God, for us to hear. We are the covenant people of God. And what has our sin done? Or shall we say this evening, we have no sin. Or shall we say that when we read God's Word here, oh, this is what fell upon those people. This is what those people back there did. Good word for them to hear, but not me. Not us. Good word for those Christians outside these walls somewhere over there to hear. Or do we hear? Do we hear God showing us very graphically what sin does? His judgments upon sin and the great grief that ought to fall upon us because of our sin. That's what we first need to see as we come to the Lord's table. In this passage, however, God is telling us not to do that. Don't rend your garments. Now, don't rend your garments, not because it's not an apt sign. It's not fitting. This would be entirely improper. But God is calling them to what that sign represents. What the rending of garments is supposed to picture. Repentance. And that's what he's referring to when he says, rend your heart. That word, you may substitute the word repentance, a turning about, as is brought out in verse 12. Therefore also now saith the Lord, turn ye. Literally the word repent. So, repent. And if you want to know what repentance is, it is a rending of the heart. Now what does that mean? To rend your heart. Well, take the figure. Take the picture. You take that which ought to be one. In order to be view useful, it needs to be one. It's something that's knit together and designed to be one. To work in unison. There's a picture here of the heart. And you do to the heart what you well, if you do it, it will kill you. If you could reach in and take your heart and tear it apart, it will kill you. Even as rending your garments looks at you, well, that's foolish. Without garments, you're naked. Without garments, you perish. So also the figure here, and we need to see that when we look at what repentance really is. It's a killing of self. There's mortifying that belongs to it. And I could point you to what we, we saw this morning. This morning we considered that there's one part of repentance, one part of this turning that involves what we call mortifying the old man. This evening we're going to look at it in terms of the supper's form that we hope to read here in a bit. Negatively, repentance means to turn from something. To turn from sin. 
I'm going to emphasize just in a little bit what you, what that's all about. You might think rending your heart is simply a matter of sorrow, but turning from sin has this idea that the heart wants sin. The heart is inclined to sin. The sin clings to the heart. There's a knitting together, as it were, of the heart and sin. So much do we love sin, want sin, desire sin, seek after sin, that to turn from it is going to require tearing your heart in pieces. And that, you see, is put in terms of the Lord's Supper form this way. That we first recognize what sin is. It's what the supper form calls, let everyone consider by himself his sins and the curse due to him for them. Now we look at that and we think, consider his sins. And we think that means, hmm, what sins did I commit? And what have I done? And often when we do that, that consideration, we give it a lick and a promise. Oh yeah, I, uh, I may have used the Lord's name in vain and, and I have to admit this and, and, and a, a couple other things that I'm, I'm struggling to remember right now. That's part of it. And we need to be reminded what considering your sins means. It means dig deep. Dig deep. Examine yourself. Examine your life. And remember, you need to examine your life by faith, which means you examine your life as God would see it. How does God look at my life? How does God look at what's going through my head and my mind and my heart? God sees that. I may be content with the fact that I haven't actually committed adultery but God says part of repentance, considering your sins, is to realize all the times you've committed adultery with your eyes and with your brain, with your heart. But there's more than that. It's not simply counting and adding up. It's consider your sin. Consider how utterly horrible it is. Is that not the problem? When we fail to repent, when we would rather rend our garments. And that's really, you see, what's being pictured. <laughs> the kind of repentance that just not only gives it a lick and a promise when we look at the number of our sins, but, oh yeah, they're sins. I know there's something wrong with them. I know God is displeased with them in such way, but no, 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 no. Look at what they really are, how offensive they are. God, even those tiny little ones. And, and that's really what's brought out in the next phrase, and the curse due to us for them. Do we see it that way? When we read a description like we're reading in the passage of Joel chapter 2, and we imagine this invincible army flooding over the land and destroying everything in sight, climbing over the walls of the city of Jerusalem and running through the streets, just killing people left and right, burning everything that's in sight, do we say, yeah, that's what our sins deserve. The curse of God. We again considered that this morning, didn't we? And we look at hell and we say, oh, that's for those people over there. No, no, no. 
Hell's what you deserve. Hell's what I deserve. And certainly some locusts and some palmer worms destroying all your crops or even a horde of Babylonians slaying and killing and raping and hurting doesn't even do justice to hell itself. And those flames, even the destruction that God is going to wreck on the earth because of sins and our sins. It's what they deserve. That's the first part. That's one of the parts of turning away from sin. Recognizing that the form brings that out. It also requires what the form says that we abhor and humble ourselves before God. Ask yourself, what does rending the heart mean? Rending the heart involves recounting your sin, seeing the horror of sin, the curse that's due to us for them, and then abhor and humble ourselves. You see, it's with the heart that we love ourselves. We don't abhor ourselves. We love ourselves. We even love ourselves before God. We stand before God. Do we abhor ourselves before God? No, we love ourselves before God. That's again brought out by the rending the garments. Our natural inclination is, oh, we have some sin here. Oh, God is displeased with our sin. We get that. And certainly God will be satisfied if I tear my garments. No. No, no, no. We have to rend our hearts, which means we abhor ourselves. That is, abhor who we are as sinners. Rending our hearts means you take the very heart that thinks quite highly of ourselves, that even thinks quite highly of ourselves before God. Why, I'm a better sinner than those over there. I'm more righteous than those people over there. My church is more pure and more sound. I do more godly and wonderful things than they. No. No. Repentance is abhorring yourself, of course, as a sinner. And part of that is humbling yourself before God. Speaking there about grief over sin, not only grief over sin, but grief over ourselves as sinners. Is that not part of repentance? Is that not part of our despair? That only a few months after we celebrated the Lord's Supper and we considered all these things, here we are again. Why? Because we're sinners. Do you abhor that? Does that disgust you? Does that make you grieve? Well, that's what repentance is. That's rending your heart, saying, why, oh why, oh why. It's what the Heidelberg Catechism says is learning to hate and learning to fight against sin. See it for what it is. Then there's another side, of course, always with repentance. Always. And that is because, well, if you turn from sin, there's only one other place to turn to. The idea of repentance is there's sin and more sin. And our heart is connected to sin. And if you're to actually turn from sin and not turn to more sin or other sin or different sin, there's only one other place, and that's our Lord Jesus Christ to our God. Otherwise, our turning is only temporary. 
it's really impossible. You would like to say, and there's places where the Scriptures do that, they remind us, that if repentance is just something negative, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to stop doing this. I'm going to stop doing it even because I recognize it's sinful and abhorrent. But there's not a turning to the Lord to serve and love Him. Then you really haven't turned. And it'll quickly show. We'll go right back. It'll be very temporary. No progress. No sanctification, as it were. But when we truly turn from sin, when we really do, and we turn to the Lord, you see, what that is is a reflection, not of really two acts, but one. When the car goes forward, then it leaves somewhere. And if it doesn't leave where it's at, then it's not going forward. If you're walking in this direction, then you're leaving that direction. If you're not leaving that direction, then you're, you're not going forward. You see? You see how this works. Repentance is described, number one, where you're leaving and why you're leaving. What's happening to your heart. And then where it goes in another direction. It's a 180. It's a flip. It's a turn. And that's how always it is described in the Holy Scriptures. The form also talks about that. The form goes on to talk about that we examine our, our hearts, especially examining our hearts whether we believe the faithful promise of God that our sins are forgiven, turning to Him for forgiveness. And, and you understand that's what it's all about, see? If in fact this is what sin is, if in fact this is what our sin does to God, if in fact this is what our sins deserve, why would anybody turn to God? Why would anybody turn to God and our Lord Jesus Christ? And the answer is, because of what He's done. Because He has taken what we deserve. We saw again that this morning. I will be brief on that. But that's why it's there as a second thing in the self-examination. And notice, when we examine our heart, that's the question. Do you believe that? Otherwise, again, you may turn from sin temporarily for a time. You may feel bad about it for a little bit. But it's only when we turn to our Lord Jesus Christ and say, He's the one. God's judgments, what I deserve, fall on Him. He's the one that's paid the price then only then really are we turning from sin. Otherwise it's just an appearance thing. Really, in the end, the rending of garments. And this is why the form goes on also to talk about purposing. Purposing to show true thankfulness in God. Even as there's a hatred, a disgust, a change in our heart with regard to sin, there's a change in our heart an attraction. And again, look at the figure, rending of heart, and understand what it involves. Why does the heart have to be rend? Is rending really even where I'm tearing it apart? The answer is you don't understand. Your heart loves sin. Your heart loves it. Sees it as fun. Sees it as beautiful. Sees it as wonderful. Sees it as the answer to all our problems. It's what's going to give me peace. It's what's going to give me happiness. That's your heart. And your heart doesn't do both. 
And your heart has to be torn from that and say, no, God is lovely. God is beautiful. God is the one. And more specifically, our Lord Jesus Christ. And that tears the heart to shreds. That's all part of what's being brought out here in repentance, even conversion. And notice, too, you rend your hearts. Rend your hearts. God doesn't come and say, I'm going to rend them for you. I'm going to rend them instead of you. No, rend your hearts. Even as you would rend your garments, don't rend your garments. But rend your heart instead. Now, it's not the Lord saying that when you rend your heart, that's done by your strength and by your power. In fact, you can see that just on the face of it. But when you look at the figure here, when you look at what's being done here, God even hints at it. There's going to be a form of repentance in Israel. There will even be true repentance in His elect, of course. But God is doing what by sending these hordes of insects? What's, what's God doing? Well, the Lord hits at that when He even shows that in one instance there's going to be crops. God, God's going to, instead of doing that, preserve the crops. Or give them a time of restitution where crops again grow. God again brings the rain. The point is, is God's doing that to work repentance. God's doing that so that the people rend their hearts and not their garments. God's working that. And if it's not done, God will make sure it's done. God will turn the hordes into horses and chariots. Actual armies. If that doesn't work, just continues. And that's really what you have to see is why He sends our Lord Jesus Christ. Rend your hearts. But that's the work of God. And the work of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But nevertheless, it's something in which we're busy. Even as you would take your hands and put it on your garment and shred it, there's something that goes on when we rend our hearts. And, and amazingly, if you actually look at the figure, it's the heart tearing itself apart. <laughs> it's not there in the figure as such, but we learn elsewhere from Scripture that God gives us a new heart. Or God gives us a new man. And there's a mortifying. How does that happen? It happens through the new man. It's the heart, one heart, one power, tearing another power to shreds as it were. And don't forget too that although at times the Scripture talks in this in terms of a one-time great act, that this is something that the Scriptures make clear we must do as a result of sin. Why does the Scriptures come... Well, let's put it this way. Why is it that this comes to us time and time and time and time again in Scripture? And the answer is because we sin time and time and time and time again. And the point of repentance is that it really never ends. It's our life. As often as we sin, we must repent. It's why we can't look at this ever and say, oh, rending the heart and not the garment. I, I see that's, a, uh, that's, a, that's something that happens on the mission field once. Sort of like regeneration. No, regeneration is it in principle, but it continues throughout life because we sin throughout life. That's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper again and again and again. 
That's why we can't say to ourselves, oh, this repentance thing, that applies to a couple of people in our church. Or that man over there who, who has done this or that. No. Rend your heart. God is speaking to you. God is speaking to your heart. And He speaks it as often as we sin. And because we don't do that as we ought, we should. It's one reason we celebrate the Lord's Supper and why in connection with the celebration we have a form that brings it to our mind. It again is God doing His work. And remember this too. The same thing applies. It has happened, and it happens frequently, too frequently, that we come to the Lord's table and we have not rent our hearts. Well, we've rent garments. We've gone through the formality of repentance, and we present ourselves before the Lord. And when we do that, guess what happens? The biblical and creedal expression is, we eat and drink judgment to ourself. In terms of the passage here, it would be starvation. When the people of God responded to the prophet, when God spoke and said, this is what I'm going to do, rend your hearts and not your garments, and the people instead rent their garments and weren't concerned about their hearts, what happened? The beasts came and ate all their food and they starved to death. That's what happens at the Lord's Supper. If this week we just rend our garments and then show up, well, the Bible says you'll eat something. But it's judgment. Starvation. Spiritual starvation. Now that's not the end of the matter. As we're going to see, the Lord is gracious and kind and good and wonderful. And if we're one of His children, one of His elect, God will work. Repentance. Oh, it might be that the palmer worms and the canker worms and all the insects become people, hordes of people. Sin so much that we want to vomit it. We're sick of it. But that's the Lord working repentance. But one way or another, we will rend our hearts. God will see to it. And that brings me to the blessing or the promise that's made here. Rend your hearts and not your garments and turn unto the Lord your God and then it asks this question, who knoweth if he will return and repent? Now, when you look at that and you see it put in the form of a question, you might say to yourself, well, maybe that's only a possibility. Maybe in the end all of this is left up to me and my own strength. And, and if that's true, by the way, we're done for. And maybe the question reinforces that notion in our mind. That this is my part of the bargain, my part of the contract. This is what i got to do and God leaves it up to me. And you see that question and think that, oh yeah, it's only a possibility. But no, there's a good reason though the Spirit, we may just dismiss that. We may just throw that away. There's a reason why the Spirit puts it in that way. And the idea is to reinforce what God is telling us to do. It's God's way of really saying, this is impossible for you of your own strength and by your own power. You see, the idea is there's a good reason to ask such a question if one really understands the true nature of his sin. The idea is this, if we really knew what our sin is and what it does and the horror of it, then we would truly abhor ourselves. We would loathe and humble ourselves before God to the point where we even ask the question, 
Could God possibly save me? Truly. If we really knew what our sin deserves, if we really knew all the sins we committed, it really should cross our mind. Is it even possible for God to undo what I did? Is it really possible for God to forgive me? Is it really possible that I could sit at the Lord's table and eat with Him after what I've done? That's the idea behind the question. The idea behind the question is if you understand who God is, you might say to yourself, not only rending my heart is impossible, but it doesn't matter how much I rend my heart. It doesn't matter if I tear myself to shreds. Why in the world would God? Why would God stop the hordes? Why would God prevent the judgments? Why would God end all this? Why would God receive me and sit down at the table with me? You see, that's what's behind the question form. And of course, repentance being a matter of faith looks at that and takes the question away. Says there's no doubt, but God is going to do this. No doubt that God will even repent Himself. And, and, and there too, re- amazing language is being used. The same word, repent, what God is calling us to, repent, turn, change, is used for God. You might look at that and say, well, is that even possible with God? But again, it's reinforcing. Do you understand who God is? Do you understand what your sin is? So much so that when God does the opposite of what you deserve and what I deserve, when we gather at the Lord's table and see what's actually happening, what we're being fed and what we're being given, you see God as repenting. Again, it has the same idea. The idea is God is convinced this is what He's going to do. It's a matter of His heart. This is what has to happen. You're going to be destroyed. You're going to be ruined. You're going to be filled with grief that rending your garments couldn't possibly express all your grief. You deserve hell. But I repent. I changed my mind. I'm not going to do that. Now the question is why? Why can God promise here that the one who rends his heart, that God will change his mind? That God won't visit that person according to their own iniquity and their sin. Is it because you repented? Is it that God looks at you and says, Oh, oh, that was a wonderful rending of your heart that you did there. That's worth something. That merits something with me. That gains. That obtains. And actually, if we have that in our own mind even as we examine ourselves, and and we have that in the back of our head, that would really be a form of rending your garment. It's not rending your heart at all. No, the rending of heart, the rending of heart has behind it that when God now returns unto me, when God repents of what He has said He's going to do, even the very word sent by the prophet, it's not because of who I am and what I am. It's got nothing to do even with my repenting. It's got to do with who God is, and the text brings it out. Why? And notice too, it, the explanation there isn't simply about why God would do what He's going to do, why God can promise what He's going to promise, 
but why you would even repent. Why is it that someone would turn from their sin unto God? And the answer of the text is, for He is gracious, and He is merciful, and He is slow to anger, and He is of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. And notice even the present tense there. He repenteth him of the evil. Not he might or will, maybe, possibly. If you do your part, he'll. But this is done. It's got to do with who God is. The same God who visits iniquity with judgment that is indescribable and brings grief such that you rend your garments is the God who is also gracious and merciful. And remember what grace is. Remember what grace is. Grace is the attitude that makes something lovely or is lovely or beautiful. The idea is that God's grace makes Him lovely and beautiful to us. Desirable. And that's what grace is to us. It's God looking at us who are stinking damn worthy sinners, and looking at us with favor. And why? Because He views us in Christ. God isn't gracious to us because we repent. No, we repent because God is gracious to us. And then grace also is God's power to affect what He has planned to do. God, you see, looks at us in Christ. He has chosen us in Christ. And then God deals with us that way. And so grace also has behind it the idea of an irresistible power to affect that which even God commands. So that when God says repent, when God says rend your hearts, the impossible is done. That's what grace is. It's God doing the impossible. And God even doing the impossible through us. Ask yourself, can you rend your heart and live? The answer is no, you can't. Try it once. You kill yourself. Can't be done. But yet the child of God will indeed rend his heart. How can that be done? Answer is God's grace. How in the world are you going to turn from sin where your heart says, that's lovely, that's nice, that's wonderful, that's going to bring me so much joy, and then turn to God, who's this God of judgment and anger, and the answer is grace. And mercy. God showing mercy unto us, not because we repent, not because we rend our hearts. God showing mercy because He's merciful. He shows mercy to whom He will show mercy. And it's even here in the text again. Why does God send a prophet and even tell His people this? Why does God send a prophet and command what He's doing? And the answer is God's mercy. God's going to affect that which He commands here. It's going to be accomplished. Oh, not in everyone there, no doubt. That again is God showing mercy to whom He will show mercy. But the fact is, God's doing it, and He's doing it to a people that is His own covenant people because they are His covenant people. He has made Him so. He doesn't do this to every nation and people and tribe and tongue. He's also of great kindness. It goes on to describe that kindness of God. Showing kindness is a matter of showing good to those who don't deserve good. It's an aspect of grace. Dealing gently with someone who deserves to be dealt with roughly. Now, how does God do that? How does God work all this? And again, the form brings it up. That's why it asks us that question. Do you believe in our Lord Jesus Christ? How is it that you partake next Sunday of the table? The answer is that it's the same way in which you will examine yourself 
in the way that you rend your heart by faith? What's the only possibility from turning to sin unto God? And all of it comes down to one thing, faith. Faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Only faith can rend the heart. Only faith can leave sin and cling to our Lord Jesus Christ. Only faith can see the grace and mercy and kindness of God even in the midst of judgment. Only faith can see God working that work. Not simply the blessing that follows, but the repentance that precedes it. And all of that we will enjoy. All of that we will receive in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father which art in heaven, O Lord, we thank Thee for Thy Word, for the goodness of Thy Word. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.